heads up, because you are in the hoodwood. I'm the Black Bandit, KJ Green, welcoming you to another edition of Sports from the Hoodwood. Coming up in this edition, Colorado jumps back to the Big 12. Now, could this be the start of another collegiate conference shakeup? MLB trading deadline has come and gone. Have there been big moves? Much to do about nothing. And speaking of the MLB, is there anything like a pennant race or any such thing as a pennant race anymore? Proper being spent in the Super Fight. We'll take a deep dive into that fight and the future of the now four division champ. We'll have all that and then more NFL previews, backed out, get slapped, and more sports taking you shake your stick at. Sports from Hoodwood. Put on your crash helmet, put on your seatbelt, and get ready. Let's go. started with week's first topic talk about moving day another conference another team moving this time a bit of a shake-up with Colorado jumping back to the Big 12 now is this part of another collegiate shake-up can't be too sure now the Buffs were a charter member of the Big 12 when it was first founded in 1996 and was there until 2010 was part of the mass exodus that saw Nebraska vote for the Big Ten, uh, Texas A&M and Mizzou moved to the SEC, and the Buffs moving to the Pac-10 to join with Utah coming from the Mountain West to form the Pac-12. The Buffs have been more or less also ran in this conference the past few years in most sports, especially football, but with the hiring of Deion Sanders as coach, they have looked to st- jumpstart their milling program. I have a little bit more to say on Deion Sanders a little bit later in the show with the final word, foreshadowing. But this has been a remarkable turnaround for the Big 12 Conference, who once looked like they were on live sport after the defections of Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC, which will take an effect 2024 season. Now, these powerhouse programs carry considerable gravitas as national brands and the reduction of teams from 12 to 10 looked like it would damage the Big 12's status as a Power 5 conference. Though they did pick up three teams from the American in Cincinnati, my alma mater, Central Florida, and Houston, sizable schools that were dominant in the AAC and independent Brigham Young, it looked like a dying flail. But while these teams may have not carried the weight of a Texas or in Oklahoma, they did give the conference some stability, which has been increased with the acquisition of Colorado. Now the onus shifts to the Pac-12, already severely damaged with their own titanic losses in the Los Angeles schools of Southern Cal and UCLA to their hated rival, the Big Ten. Now they look to keep from getting raided by other conferences. I'm hearing many rumors that the Big 12 would like nothing more than to add a couple more mountain time zone teams. Hmm, looking at you, Utah. And that will provide instant rivalries with incoming BYU and Colorado. Also, the possibility of Arizona schools being added to the mix in Arizona and Arizona State. This could make the Big 12 a 16-team conference on par with SEC and the Big 10. And further damage, not only further damage the Pac-12, but past the ACC in size, stature, and national clout as truly a national brand and a national conference. I don't think that the Pac, I beg pardon, the Big 12 can get on par with SEC or the Big 10, not just yet. In basketball, maybe. 
But in football, where the big money is being made, not just quite yet. I think that the Big 12 basically picked itself up off the ground. When Texas and Oklahoma said that they were leaving the SEC, you had experts, the, these uh, so-called experts like Paul Feinbaum and some of these other uh, 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 journalists, so-called, these pundits that were saying, oh, the Big 12 is going to be dead by, by, the, by 2023. They're not going to be doing anything. They're going to be they be reduced to a, one of those uh, group of five, going to be group of seven or group of 18 uh, conferences. The Big 12, behind Brett Yomark, has really made a push to not only strengthen its core members, I think with the loss of Texas and Texas A&M, two of the biggest schools uh, in the state of Texas, that did hurt the Big 12. That said, you are gaining more teams. Cincinnati, Houston, Central Florida, while not national names, are decent-sized schools. They're not small shirking violets. They are on the come up. Central Florida, uh, with their new, where fairly new stadium, the, the Bounce House, has pulled in big numbers. Cincinnati went to the college football playoff last year. Uh, I beg your pardon, two years ago. Houston has been a decent sized school and a decent sized program for a number of years. Add them with Brigham Young, you've added four solid teams. Picking up Colorado makes it makes it makes it a game changer because now the Pac-12 is has now lost three teams, and these other teams in the Pac-12 are looking like we're just getting a media deal, and the media deal they got wasn't as big as they wanted. West Virginia, who was rumored to want to jump to the ACC, now is going. We don't want the ACC no more. ACC is seeing. The Big Ten, the SEC, and possibly the Big 12 passed them in revenue. Suddenly, teams like Florida State, Clemson, Miami, North Carolina are all going, where's our, where's our cheddar? They're asking the ACC commissioner, what are you doing for us? What kind of money are you, extra money are you bringing us? What are you, are you prepared to do for me? And the ACC locked into a, a, a television contract with ESPN till 2035 is kind of going, what you want us to do? And you already have teams like Florida State looking over to SEC and seeing the kind of buku money just down the road. Tallahassee ain't that far from Gainesville. They ain't that far from Athens. They're looking at both of these schools, watching them grow exponentially squeeze them out, and they're thinking, maybe it may be best for us to jump to the SEC or the Big 12 or another conference that is going to give us a bigger pie. Not necessarily a bigger piece of the pie, but a bigger pie that has bigger pieces. Uh, that makes sense or not, <laughs> but... But you're gonna have, and then you have team, you have conferences like the Pac-12 who have already lost three teams. Utah's looking like, are we in trouble here? And the Arizona teams are like, is this does this make worse staying? We're not even talking about Oregon or Washington or the no-cal teams like Cal and Stanford who are getting just passed by like like slow cars on on the freeway. The conference shakeups that have been uh, in play over the last 15 years have shifted the college landscape to where you barely recognize it anymore. But it's rapidly coming where there may only be, instead of a power five, power four. And I think that may be just the way that college football likes it. Now, as I pointed out before, Snuffy was saying it's the dog days of summer being August, and with the calendar turning to August, means MLB trading deadline has come and gone. At 6 p.m. on August 1st, it's the last day that trades could be completed without having to go through waivers, and most teams aren't going to go through waivers trying to pass big names through because they know that other teams will claim them. 
that said, there were a few major names changing addresses on the 1st of August. One of the biggest ones being the New York Mets having a fire sale getting rid of both Max Scherzer to Texas and Justin Verlander back to Houston. Now that arms race in the AL West is going to heat up really quick with Houston and Texas being bitter rivals. You wouldn't think they would have been bitter rivals, but now all of a sudden they're in the same division and they can't stand one another. That being said, it seemed like a lot of teams have done a lot of offloading, and there were some teams who did not do some offloading, uh, didn't do any really big major pickups. Uh, the Atlanta Braves and the Cincinnati Reds being two of the teams that really didn't do a lot of moving, not that they really had to do a lot, even though the Braves picked up Nicky Lopez, but eh, it's not a big earth shaker. The Reds only picked up uh, Sam Maul from the A's and they need pitching help badly. Their, their, their shaky pitching staff is already bitten them in the butt with a couple of really bad whoopings to the, at the hands of the Cubs and Wrigley Field. That team's arm depletion is going to come back to hurt them. The uh, uh, waiting uh, for Hunter Green and Nick Dolo, and you're wondering if those young arms are going to be able to stem the tide for the Reds who are hanging on to a shaky lead in NL Central, and by the time this uh, episode reaches you, could be out of first place in the NL Central. That still has yet to be determined. But there are some teams who did make fairly big moves. I think the Philadelphia Phillies way overpaid for Michael Lorenzen. Lorenzen, a good pitcher for the Tigers, but the Phillies are a middling team still trying to get in jockeying for the playoff spot. They're not going to catch the Braves in in the NL East. The Boston Red Sox, the New York Yankees, and the Cleveland Guardians didn't do enough. I don't think they did anything. I mean, come on. Luis Arias for the Red Sox, he's batting a buck 45. Are you serious? And you wanted to see what the Toronto Blue Jays were going to do. If they were going to make some sort of strong move, especially with uh, Bo Bichette's tricky knee, not trick knee, but tricky knee, maybe hampering them. Picking up uh, Whit Merrifield is a decent pickup, but I really can't see where it's going to really move the needle. Baltimore Orioles, who've already pushed in the first place, are sitting pretty and didn't even make a lot of big moves. Though they did adding Jack Flaherty is a good move they to strengthen that young rotation. I think the Orioles are in first place to stay. And that young team is going to continue to grow. I'm looking at the way the Reds are playing right now. They're going to be the Orioles of next year. A young team that is coalesced and picking up big arms. Now, trading deadline didn't see Shohei Otani move, to my surprise. Uh, Artie Moreno decided to pull him off of the trade market, deciding that he was going to gamble that he could keep Shohei Otani because everybody knows he's headed for free agency and a super big payday. And only a handful of teams are able to afford him. The way Moreno figures is if the Angels go all in and show Otani, hey, play on words, that they are ready to, to, to make a commitment to winning, that he'll stay with Mike Trout and be that one-two punch. Will it work? Only time will tell. But, MLB trading deadline did do a little bit of shaking up, and it did um, prove interesting, though we didn't see any like monster trades, even though Verlander to the Astros was a fairly monster trade, but the Mets are doing a fire sale, so everybody pretty was figuring they were going to just cast off all their big names and big numbers. The $800 million that uh, Steve Cohen paid for the Mets is looking like a fool's bet now because he threw a bunch of money at players and the Mets have been middling all year. Trading deadline is always fun to watch. Take a time out. Come back and we will stay with the MLB vein and ask the question. Is there any such thing as a pennant race anymore? Or are they just teams just jockeying for wild card spots? Does winning a division really mean anything? Sportsman what comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? 
Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at gottagetmarriednow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at gottagetmarriednow.com. on top of the division, he played in October. It was pretty much that simple, straightforward. Many old school pundits think that 1993 was the last great pennant race where the Braves and the Giants battled for the NL West. Yes, there was one time where the Braves were in the NL West. Don't ask me how the geography set up. I'm not going to try to explain it. But they battled out to the final day. One of the great back and forth pennant races went right down to the last day. Despite the Giants having MVP Barry Bonds and winning 103 games, they went home after the last day of the season. Today, they are the last Major League Baseball team to win 100 or more games and not play in the postseason. And that used to happen quite often in Major League Baseball up until the advent of the three teams, uh, three uh, divisions, and the wild card. Now, the next full season, which was 1995, saw a three-division set up with implementation of the wild card. But in that year, you had another great pennant race as the Mariners ran down the then-California Angels to force a one-game playoff to decide AL West crown. Now, the Mariners won that game because the Yankees had already had a better record than either one of the two teams. That was truly a do-or-die pennant race. Now, you've had battles for the wild card and the spots until the spots were expanded, but you really haven't had a real joust for the division of titles anymore. You basically have a drive to clinch a playoff spot, which will set up a do-or-die three-game first-round series. Now, this leads me to my question. Is there such thing as a pennant race anymore? We'll take a look here at the stats. There are six divisional races, and five of the six are surprisingly tight, with the Orioles leading by two games over the Tampa Bay Rays, the Twins leading by two over the Guardians, the Rangers and the Astros have been jousting all, all year for the uh, AL West crown. Now, the NL East, of course, is a joke. The Braves leading by 11 games and pulling away. The Reds and the Brewers have been trading back and forth NL Central crown pretty much all year. And the Giants have closed the gap on the once formidable Dodgers. Now, you do remember that the Dodgers and the Giants both won over 100 games last year. There were three teams that won over 100 games and, of course, all made the playoffs. But none of them made the World Series. None of them won the World Series. What I'm trying to say here is... There are there, the drama of the pennant races are gone. Now you have teams jockeying for playoff spots. The, the interest more now is in the wild card spots and the teams that will make the wild card. Now you have the Rays, Astros, and the Blue Jays, who are the three teams who are best in the best position to make the playoffs in the AL with the Giants, Phillies, and Brewers picking up the uh, pace in the NL for the wild card spots. But there's just jockeying for those spots. It's more of making the playoffs now than winning your division. Because as the Marlins have shown us, a wild card can win the World Series. The two times the Marlins have made the playoffs, 1993 and 2003, I beg your pardon, 1997 and 2003, the Marlins were founded in 1993, I'll correct that. But the two times that the Marlins have made the playoffs in 1997 and 2003, they were wild cards. 
and they won the World Series. A wild card can win the World Series, and it has been done more than a few times. The pennant races, though, have lost their luster, which I think is a shame, because there was nothing more stirring than two teams fighting it out, scoreboard watching, and trying to make that last great move that was going to put them over the top to make the playoffs. And while I thought many people thought it was unfair that a team that won 100-plus games would sit home and still finish first and get the postseason glory. And that kind of luster has died off. It's really a shame. Everybody talked about it, and I guess I'll put my two cents in, even though I really didn't see the fight. I uh, checked out the highlights of it. Crawford not be uh, Bud Crawford beating Spence in the very much Ballyhooed super fight last Saturday. Crawford forward Spence in round two and twice in round seven, and he ended up winning the IBF, WBA, WBC title, 147-pound titles. And he'll go, that goes with the WBO title that Crawford already had coming into the fight. Now, the fight was stopped in the ninth round when Crawford unleashed a series of unanswered punches that led to the ref stopping the fight mercifully at 232 of the ninth round. Those Spence vociferously protested the stoppage. It was clear he had no chance. He was losing badly on every card. Most of the people I had already had the fight at 8-1 to one for Bud Crawford who now goes 40-0. Crawford outlanded Spence 185-96 in total punches, 87-33 edge and jabs, 98-63 in power punches. This was a first-class ass-whooping royale. Bud Crawford was the better puncher. He was crisp with his jabs. He moved quicker. He just seemed to have Spence beat at every turn. And though Spence did... Fight a game fight, he just seemed to be on the defensive the entire fight. He didn't he didn't make any amount of any kind of serious attack, and he really didn't hurt Crawford with any of his power punches. Now that said, Crawford now at 40-0, who does he fight? I mean, Spence wants a rematch at 154, but one wonders does he have the, the ability to fight with any power at that weight? If he got beat down at 147, what would happen to him at 154? And if Crawford routed him that bad at 147, would people really pay to see a rematch at 154? To see both fighters a little heavier, but Crawford really slugged Spence's head off. This is not a fight anybody wants to see. Could Crawford move up more than a couple of weight classes and challenge maybe in the middleweight? He's a welterweight now. I don't see that as a, as a viable option. We're looking probably at another rematch between Crawford and Spence probably somewhere around the turn of the year. And I don't think it's going to be anything anything as hype as this first fight was. Many people try to make it out, well, this could be a, a great trilogy like Ali Frazier. Stop that. Those were legendary fighters at the highest weight class at the top of their games. While Crawford and Spence are good fighters... I take nothing away from either one of them. Crawford clearly outclassed Spence. And I can't see Spence coming back from such a beating like that. If it was a close fight, if it went 12 rounds with a, 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 a majority decision or split decision or something like that, I could see, oh, let's see a rematch. Let's get these two fighters back in the, in the ring in a few months. But between their promotional uh, groups who weren't really on the same page, took them long enough just to, to really make this fight happen, it's just not feasible. It's not going to be a good look. Let's take another timeout. Come back and let's look at some NBA and some of the crazy speculation that is going on there. Are we actually seeing the end of dynasty teams in the NBA? We'll answer that question, and we'll also have the preview of the Northern Division, both AFC and the NFC North. Take a look at what I would think those teams are going to finish up at. But from Hollywood rolls on after this. I'm actor Rajim Agros. Some of the 
studios would like to scan our images and only pay us for one day's worth of work and be able to use our likenesses, our voices, our mannerisms as computer-generated characters, not only in the movie that we might be filming in, but in all future films as well. That's not fair. And I thank the SAG board members that are fighting for my rights as an actor to work on a union film. So I just want to say standing in complete solidarity with everyone. Thank you. Sports from the Hoodwood, the internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, KJ Green. You are back in the Hoodwood, and let's shift gears to the NBA. And here's a basically a no-duh statement. Repeating is hard. And I remember when repeating was very hard in the NBA. And there was a period between 1969 and 1987 where no NBA team repeated as champs. And in that period, only the 73 Lakers, 79 Bullets, 83 Lakers, 85 and 87 Celtics even got back to the finals after winning a chip the year before. before and then the Lakers finally cracked the code by pulling it off in 1988 winning it back-to-back after Riley's guarantee. But even that was hard as they had to go to seventh games in the Western Semis, Western Finals, and the NBA Finals to win the title. And then after that, teams seemed to win titles on repeat. The Pistons did it, then the Bulls did it, and the Rockets did it, and then the Bulls did it again. The Bulls both time three-peats. Lakers won uh, back back to back titles themselves in the early 2000s, and then again in 2009 2010. and 2010. Then the Heat won in 12 and 13, the Dubs won in 17 and 18. But since the four years when the Dubs and Cavs were playing for the title seemingly every year between 15 and 18, it's been a series of turnover winners. The five years since the Dubs repeated as champs. There have been five different NBA title winners. Yeah, the Dubs won again in 22, but that was their first win since 18. In that period, the Lakers, Raptors, Lakers, uh, Raptors won. The Lakers won in the bubble. The Bucks won a title before, and the Dubs were quickly shown the door as defending champs this year, being ousted by the Lakers in the West semifinals, which paved the way for the Nuggets to win their very first NBA title. In that, you wonder, is it possible for a team to be constructed in this era and be built to win a title and win another title? Now, I'm looking at the Nuggets, who most people say with with champs, you're going, you know, they're supposed to be the team that's supposed to be the odds-on favorite to repeat. They should have the tools and the talent to do so. The teams that win the title now have a bullseye on the back. Everybody wants to take down the world champs and the you know the the year after they win the title. So repeating theoretically should be one of the hardest things to do. And is, I think, in the NBA, given the turnover, given the player movement, given the astronomical salaries against a hard salary there's a hard salary cap, but it's a tough salary cap. Winning in the NBA, actually, if you really want to come down to it, there hasn't been a repeat uh, winner in the NFL since the Patriots won three or four in the early 2000s. There hasn't been a repeat winner in baseball since the Yankees 
in the late 90s, early 2000s. There's been a repeat where there's been, I had to look that up, but in NHL, I believe there hasn't been a repeat winner in quite a while. But you look at it in sports today, dynasties are starting to go the way of the Dodo. To keep a team together, to get a team together first, to win a title, then to keep the band together and then come back and do it again is starting to become one of the more harder things to do in sports. I think only college football is the only sport where you have a team, like say Georgia, who could win back-to-back -back titles. Clemson won back-to-back. -back. Alabama won back-to-back -back titles. But still, even in college basketball, there's a bit of repeat team winning the national title since Florida turned the trick in the late in the late in the mid 2000s. You don't see teams and it's especially hard in college basketball given the turnover of players for a team to win a title. A title is hard enough. UConn pulling the trick this year do they have the chops to run it back and win it again? Given they're playing in the rugged Big, Big East, it's going to be a tough trick to pull. But to even get to a national title, get to the get to the tournament, and go through the minefield of the tournament, that's a tough trick in itself. You have to admire teams like Duke in the early 90s that ran roughshod on teams. You don't see, you know, the dominant. You will never see a dominance like UCLA did in the 60s and the 70s. One, because there's a lot harder path to get to the title. And two, you don't see the type of talent being hoarded by one team. The talent and the dearth of talent has spread across the country. So getting back, circling back to my point of the NBA, can a team repeat? It's possible. Will a team repeat? I don't see one happening anytime soon. You're back in the Hoodwood, and I have breaking news. Now, you really rarely hear me break news on Sports from the Hoodwood. Usually I'm reviewing things, but this is massive. Oregon and Washington are slated to move to the Big Ten, following the leads of Southern Cal and UCLA. And Arizona State, Utah, and Arizona are looking to move to the Big 12. Arizona has already applied for admission. This is a massive shakeup. So that leaves Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, and Washington State left adrift. They have no real homes. Now, there have been talk of the Big Ten wanting to pull in Cal and Stanford just for academic reasons. But Southern Cal and UCLA will probably scream bloody murder because they wanted California to themselves in the Big Ten. This is probably one of the biggest shakeups since the uh, Big East more or less crumbled in the early part of the tens. This is just crazy because now it looks like the Big 12 will have 16 teams and be on par with the SEC and Big 10 size-wise and past the ACC in revenue. The basketball in this is going to be crazy in the Big 12. Big 10 is going to be unwieldy. I mean, I don't think you're going to have one big super conference running from 1 to 16 because it's just, it's going to be messy. This whole thing is going to be messy. And the Pac-12 where a couple of years ago looked to be gaining strength, is now look like they're getting picked clean. It's a messy situation, to say the very least. I'll have more on this in the coming weeks. And college football this season is going to be madness with all the teams shuffling and about to shuffle and, and you know, old rivalries dying out. 
it's going to be a mess. Let's turn to the pro game, shall we? And continuing with the previews of the conferences, as I call it, Hoodwood Summer Camp, we are looking at the northern divisions of the AFC and the NFC, respectively, of the NFL. We will start with AFC and the, in my order of my order prediction, and we'll start out with the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, the Bengals last year got to the AFC Championship for the second straight year, though they lost to the Kansas City Chiefs, and they're trying to run it back for a third straight year. But have, they have gone from NFL surprise team to suddenly elite. And now as long as they have Burrow, Chase, Higgins, Triumvirate intact and healthy, they will keep many defensive coordinators sleepless and on a steady diet of antacids. Keeping Burrow upright with top-notch linemen was a focal point of the Bengals in the free agent market. And I'm confident that the Bengals will continue to be the alpha in this rugged division. Now, my second-place finisher in this division I have is Baltimore. The Ravens, who went 10-7 last year, had the Bengals on the ropes in a taut AFC wildcard match until Tyler Huntley went vertical with a goal line plunge to step forward, only to see the ball knocked from his hands, scooped up by Sam Hubbard, who made a 98-yard dash the other way with the Ravens' playoff aspirations. The Ravens are still good enough to give the Bengals headaches in the division, but you have the feeling that John Harbaugh doesn't fully trust Lamar Jackson with the offense, bringing in new offensive coordinator Todd Munkin to create a more dynamic passing attack. And with the addition of Odell Beckham and top draft choice Zay Flowers, can that amp up the Ravens enough to keep pace with the Bengals? Stay tuned. The team might finish third in the division Pittsburgh. Now, the Steelers are not used to being the bully of the division. But let's be real, the Steelers are far from the feared team that they used to be, though don't tell their fans. Kenny Pickett is still learning, and his learning curve is pretty steep, especially following in the shoes of Ben Roethlisberger, and the passing game has declined precipitously as a result. Though it's not from lack of weapons, Deontay Johnson, Pat Freermuth, and George Pickens at his disposal, Pickett should be able to... Uh, put points on the board, but with a notoriously weak offensive line, Pickett will have to pick it up. Hey, a play on words. He'll have to pick it up a lot faster or the Steelers could get picked on in this notoriously tough division. Finally, in the AFC, I have picked Cleveland. Now, the Browns, you could think it's easy to shunt them in the basement and call it a day. But the Browns are far from a pushover. And it'll be interesting to see what Deshaun Watson does with a full training camp and under his belt. The Browns still have more questions than answers, though. But one of them is definitely not a quarterback for once. The Browns have the most confidence in a signal caller since their return to the league in a quarter century ago. But with three teams in their division that are better on the ball than them, wins might be a lot harder to come by. Let's shift over to the NFC, shall we, and look at my predictions for this division. My prediction for division winner in the NFC North, the Minnesota Vikings. Yeah, yeah, I know, you think I'm biased, but the Vikings are still a fairly decent team. Will they win 11 one-score games like they did in 22? No. They won't win 13 games either. I, the schedule is brutal over the first five weeks. Now, I'm not going to act like Kirk Cousins is my favorite quarterback, of any stretch of the imagination, but he keeps cracking out wins. Though the loss of Dalvin Cook will make things a lot tougher. They won't run away with the division like they did last year, but I think the other three teams in the division have so many questions, and the Vikings have less questions to be able to stay out front. Winning in January is something else, but we're just looking at the regular season. The team I have finishing second in the NFC North is the Detroit Lions. Now, the Motor City Kitties are growing up very fast. They finished strong last year and were knocked out of playoff contention only when the last final hours of the season before they played their season finale. And then they still played a rousing game against the Packers like it was a playoff game on the final Sunday nighter. The Lions have made some interesting moves and Jared Goff, seems to be settling into leadership nicely. They'll push the Vikings for the North contention, but I still think a division crown is a little bit much to ask. A playoff spot is not, though. 
I have the Green Bay Packers finishing third in the division, and and maybe people say, well, you just because you hate the, the Packers. That that that's beyond beside the point. The Packers begin life without a, a Ron for the first and for the first time since 1992, there isn't a signal caller in the in the house named Favre or Rogers as the top signal caller. Now, Jordan Love has huge shoes to fill, and the Packers, long used to being the division powerhouse, is going to have to get used to being just a regular average team. Their team is just that, average. They finished 8-9 last year, and I figured that it'll be just about the same way they'll finish this year. They have the pieces to give other teams trouble, but they have a lot of questions and do not have ready-made answers. I have the Bears bringing up the rear in the NFC North. Justin Fields is taking way too much blame for the inconsistent play on the midway. Now, they lack a lot of the offensive tools that will make them at least competitive and losing uh, a competent piece like David Montgomery to division rival Detroit, by the way, is not going to help. They, they have a competent defense, but they're on the field way too much. And in this league... A defense that gets worn out quickly will get run on quickly. An offense that can't pick up the slack is going to mean fewer and fewer wins. Bears went 3-14 and 14 last year. If they can win five games, it will be a miracle on midway. And there you have it. Next time out, we will look at the Southern Divisions, AFC South and the NFC South, respectively. Let's take our final time out. Come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five. It's just going to be a grab bag this week. Fat Gap and Head Slap, and the final word from Wood. Switch one heads down the home stretch after this. Five takes of things that I've observed in the world of sports this week. The women's U.S. national soccer team—they they survived the scare. A taut draw with Portugal gets them through to the knockout round. Now, though they didn't really dominate against Vietnam, and they kind of played a couple of ugly draws. Their one win, two draws, and no losses is enough to get them through to the, the knockout stage as the runner-up in their group. Netherlands, with a better goal differential, moves on through. But they had some shaky moments against Portugal, a strong team that pressed them hard. 
Now, getting through the knockout round is a, is, a, is a feat in itself. And the U.S. women's team are trying to be the first team, men's or women's, to pull a three-peat of World Cups. And with Germany knocked out before the knockout round, the first time that the Lady Germans have not made the, the uh, knockout round ever in a Women's World Cup, you have to wonder, are the minefields even more treacherous for U.S. women's team? Stay tuned. Our second take in our Hoodwood Hot Five, Joe Burrow, calf strain, Bengals Nation worried. Uh, the erstwhile starting quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals and franchise player came up lame during a practice earlier this week. And Bengal Nation as a whole held its breath, held hands, and sang Kumbaya, praying that their franchise doesn't come up any more than just a slight lame. Now, it was a calf strain. It wasn't something serious like a knee injury or Achilles tear or something like that. And I don't know how serious the Bengals' Twitter feed is. I refuse to call it X. I will not call it X. But, that's, but I digress. The Bengals' Twitter feed saying that people were offering up their calves for Joe Burrow. Now, I don't know how serious they were saying that if people were actually saying that. But the Cincinnati Bengals will go as Joe Burrow goes. If he comes up hurt, the Bengals' window for a Super Bowl this year will slam shut. They will not get deep in the playoffs without number nine as signal caller of that team. Now looking at NFL trade rumors here, the Vikings looked like they were going to trade to Neil Hunter, but then signed him to a contract. Neil Hunter saying now that he wants to retire a Viking, even though the uh, contract negotiations and him holding out for a re renegotiated contract was starting to get a bit acrimonious. In Indianapolis, Jonathan Taylor wants out, but Jim Ursay, the head poobah of the Colts, has no intentions of trading uh, the uh, recalcitrant running back even with the dearth of running backs in Indianapolis' training camp, uh, Zach Morris being one of the players that got hurt with for the uh, Colts, now it's only Jonathan Taylor. And he wants out of Indianapolis. Now, is this going to come to a head? Who knows? Sunday Reds extended manager David Bell with a three-year contract. If he finishes his contract, he will be the longest tenured Reds manager since Sparky Anderson in the 70s. Is this the right move? It seems that the Reds have played well, even though not as of late, to Bell's quiet leadership and his player-type mentality. David Bell has once been a player in the major leagues. The young players respect him. The veterans think of him as one of their own. Bell is a solid manager. Even though the Reds lost 100 games last year, it seemed like they were continuing to play hard. Is this the right move? Changing horses in midstream, especially for a young team, is not a good move. Bell may be the quiet, steady hand that keeps the Reds moving forward, possibly to a return to the playoffs. Remember, they were in the playoffs in 2021. Big money on strength. That's our next topic. Jalen Brown gets paid. Supermax contract $302 million over six years makes him one of the highest paid players in the NBA. How's that going to affect Celts going forward? There is a guy by the name, I think you may have heard of him, his name escapes me, Jason Tatum. He is on a smaller contract, even though he signed an extension before he was cut for his free agency came up. But Will this affect their ability to keep Tatum in Celtic Green long term? Jalen Brown got paid. Will Jason Tatum get the same? Finally, Hoodwood extends its best well wishes to Bronny James. The son of the legendary NBA player had uh, an episode of cardiac arrest in uh, his Southern California home uh, late last week. Now, Will this affect will this affect his play going forward? Will he be able to play for SC? 
I just keep having these bad flashbacks back to Hank Gathers. May he rest of someone who had heart problems, ignored them, and decided to continue to play. Tragically, Hank Gathers died on the court in March of 1990. I pray that the whole thing that's going on with Bronny James was just something they had to do that could be fixed, corrected, and Bronny James can continue to play and possibly play with his father in a couple of years. But if he's unable to play, if it is his heart, if it's something like that, please, please don't try to push it in, in trying to gain an NBA contract. Your life is not worth it. That's my high five, plus one, but yours. Our Fat Dap and Head Slap of the Week, our Fat Dap of the Week goes to Phoenix Mercury's Diana Taurasi, who became the first player in WNBA history to notch 10,000 points. Surefire future Hall of Famer has been leading Phoenix Mercury for a number of years, and she is an old pro. Hoodwood salutes someone who is not a number that has never been seen in the 25 years of the WNBA. Our head slap of the week. I, I, I just can't even get through this looking at this number. How do you run? You're supposed to be in a track and field event. 100 yard dash. Most people run 100 yard dashes anywhere between 9.5 to 10 to 11 seconds. The winner of the 100 meter dash in. Uh, the World University, University Games in China. China. I'll do this all over again. Our, Our head slap of the week comes to it uh, goes to the Somalia track chief who allowed. With I'm finding out later on is it was a relative to compete in a 100-meter dash in the World University Games in China. I'll show you the film here. Now, you see the, the runners lining up. You see them ready to go. You know, everybody. And it's not unusual to see someone with a, a hijab on in a sprinting or track and field competition. That's not something that's unusual. But... The chairwoman of the Somali Athletic Federation, Kadagio Aden Dahir, lets an untrained, non-athlete runner run for her country. And you see the sprinters here, and the sprinters take off from the gun. And this runner runs like me. I'm 50. And I know I can't run, I'm not going to run decent. But I'm not, I'm not a world-class athlete. This person ran this 100-meter jog. I'm not even going to call it a dash. 21 seconds. 21 seconds. The winner won the race in 11. She finished 10 seconds behind the winner. 10 seconds. So that, uh, the winner could have run the race twice and, and got to the, to the finish line quicker than this person did. What this person, what the Somali Athletics Director thought, the chairwoman of the Somali Athletics Federation, why is she sent her out there? What purpose does this serve? Head slap to Adinda here for making a mockery of what should be high-level competition. This is, a, this is just a joke. And without further ado, Go the final word from the wood. The supposed scholar, Dr. Umar Johnson, I call him supposed because of what I think of his dubious scholastic merits, took to the airwaves of the Breakfast Club some time ago to blast now Colorado coach Deion Sanders for leaving HBCU Jackson State to go to a predominantly white institution, the University of Colorado. He said that Sanders had a duty to remain at HBCU and attract players of color to these schools and open doors 
for other NFL players to become coaches at other HBCUs, who would then in turn start to pull other black and brown players away from PWIs, thus tilting the playing field and the competitive and visual ability of HBCUs. He called centers a sellout and railed at his actions. Now, while I think that Sanders made Jackson State a solid team and an HBCU powerhouse, he in no way would have been able to challenge what any PWI is able to do on the field and in the drawing power. They may be able to beat a lesser D1 team, but not a top Big 12 ACC or Pac-12 team, and certainly not an SEC or Big 10 team. Do that, Sanders would have had to stay at Jackson State for a long time and build that team generationally. Coach Prime is 55, and for him to do that would have taken decades, and that would have taken away the prime years away from his coaching. And for what purpose? To satisfy the howlings of a supposed scholar that says Dion has a duty to stay and fulfill some supposed role as frontman? What makes Sanders the point man for NFL players to want to coach? Why can't these players make the move on their own? Why does Sanders have to be the draw of the magnet for these? Eddie George is coaching at Tennessee State, and while he is doing a decent job, he is, only, he is the only former NFL player that is coaching the HBCU ranks. Why is that Sanders' fault? Sanders made the move to Colorado after going 27-6 at Jackson State. Had there been any other, other coach, black or white, he'd been lauded for making the jump to the quote-unquote big time. But Sanders took heat for the move. And... I take umbrage for that heat being applied to him. Though you could echo Sanders' one-time rap jam, Must Be the Money, for the move, this was a professional move, and a move that many other coaches have made. I can look no further than my beloved alma mater and see the number of coaches that have been there three or four years before moving on to other jobs. It sucks, but it's part of business football. I ask, why is Sanders singled out? Yes, he's a very high-profile sports figure and brings high notoriety to any place that he's associated with. But in the end, this is a business. And though it would be nice to see Sanders stay at an HBCU, it's not realistic to see him while away his prime coaching years. For what? To entice other NFL players of color to possibly coach? Who is to say that said coaches will be good at that level? And what has stopped HBCUs on their own terms from reaching out to said NFL players and gauging their interest in coaching? Why does Johnson think that Sanders should be the Pied Piper? If anything, Johnson should be on HBCUs for their hirings. He should be after Florida A&M for shuttering their program in the wake of a misogynistic and violent rap video. Or on Bethune-Cookman, who hired NFL Hall of Famer Edward Reed and then quickly fired him after he took them to task for the deplorable conditions that they had to train in. He has been conspicuously silent on this front. Picking at Sanders is the low, easy hanging fruit. To delve deeper into the issues that HBCU football teams and universities face is a lot more complex and tougher and something that Johnson does not want any part of. And that is the final word from the board. Now with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in Littlewood is just about done for the week. And I thank you so much for your visit. Now the show's email is kjgreen at sportswithwood.com. Please send me emails regarding show topics, both past and future, questions, comments on the show, and both praise and criticism. We'll be a correspondent, so we'll try to get back to you in a timely manner. The show's website is sportswithwood.com, which has a back catalog of the show dating back over 10 years in both audio and video form. So you can check that out if there are any shows that you may have missed. You can join the debate and conversation on the Sportsman Goodwood Facebook page. I also have video podcast simulcasts as well as other topics, funny stuff I find on the web, and plenty of other great sports debate, and a whole lot more. I post often there, and I respond to member posts frequently. Now, the video versions are also on YouTube. Please hit that subscribe, smash that like button for more great content. 
and link to this podcast is also on Twitter. It's on the Twitter feed at Hoodwood Sports. Most interesting stuff to find there. You can read the show and we'll do too bad. You can like and follow there as well. And the audio version is on Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Apple, and a host of other fine podcast platforms and providers. If this Hoodwood is not on your favorite podcast provider, ask for it. Drop me a line and I will do my best to get it there as quickly as possible. As always, special thanks to Rage Pictures for providing production assistance to both the show and the website. That's it from the Hoodwood, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Until next time, fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green, 30. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films production.